just a few minutes, we'll be in uh, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verses 32 through 38. Nehemiah 9, 32 through 38, if you'd like to go ahead and find your way there this morning. Last week, we took the time to focus in on the wandering of the Israelites. and tried to bring the message to a head by looking at the mercy of God and saying that um, we shouldn't dwell just on our sin, that we indeed all should identify with Israel, and they're being prone to wander, but we should not be discouraged by our past history of disobedience. But instead, we should use that to highlight the great mercy of God in our life. Mercy is, is interesting because it's not what any of us deserves. For, for our sinfulness, what every single one of us um, deserves is an eternal hell. But God, who is our patient redeemer, indeed gives us mercy. And if we truly stop and think about it, the, the ability just to draw our, our next breath on this earth is indeed an act of mercy of God. Luis Palau, in his book, Experiencing God's Forgiveness, writes this story about Napoleon. A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed certain offense, uh, certain offense twice Injustice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy and spared the woman's son. Mercy is not what we deserve. President Calvin Coolidge knew a little bit about mercy. Years after the death of, of President Calvin Coolidge, this story came to light. In the early days of his pre presidency, Coolidge awoke one morning in his hotel room to find a cat burglar going through his pockets. Coolidge spoke up, asking the burglar not to take his watch chain because it contained an engraved charm he wanted to keep. Coolidge then engaged the thief in quiet conversation and discovered he was a college student who had no money to pay his hotel bill or buy a ticket back to campus. Coolidge counted out $32 from his wallet. He had also persuaded the day's young man to give it back or to give back his wallet and declared it to be a loan and advised the young man to leave the way he had come so to avoid the secret service. Yes, the loan was paid back. Mercy. This morning we're going to notice a plea for mercy in our passage. And I would ask that if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning as we look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 32 through 38 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, 
our fathers and all your people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, as we see throughout this passage, it is a plea for mercy. Lord, I would plead that you would have mercy on us, your people. I pray that you'd speak through your word and that your servants would hear and that we would not just hear, but we would be obedient to what we hear this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. In this section, we find the Jews are pleading with God for mercy in the midst of their situation. Up until this point, there had been a great deal of progress. The walls of Jerusalem have been built. The city has been repopulated. However, the city itself uh, still remained in ruins, and they still had enemies all around them. Therefore, the people of God uh, cry out to God for the same mercy that he had shown to their forefathers. The first thing I want us to see from this passage of scripture this morning is that they were recognizing God's providence. They were recognizing God's providence. Verse 32 starts with these words, now therefore. This is a transition from the past to the present. It's like saying, because of what we just said, or because of what we were just praying, we are now saying this. They had just looked at the history of Israel and how they kept turning from God over and over and over and over again, and how God was merciful to them and how God was gracious to them. And because of that great uh, grace of God and the great mercy of God, they are now going to make a request of God. God is not just the God of yesterday, but he is still God today, and he will be God tomorrow. There is no beginning and there is no ending with God. After recounting everything that God did for their forefathers, the people are led to pray for their current situation. In their plea, they reveal several things to us about who God is. This is not just rhetoric on behalf of the people. But as they focus on who God is, their troubles are put into perspective. And the same is true of us. When we have proper theology of who God is, 
suddenly the troubles that we face, for some reason, don't seem so troublesome anymore. Surely the mercy of God will rescue them from their troubles, and surely the mercy of God will rescue us from our troubles one way or another. So first, let's notice that that he is personal. They're, They're talking about God. Let's first notice that God is personal. He is a personal God. Notice what they say about God. He is our God. The the people still could address God as our God despite their sinful ways because they knew that he was a merciful God. Listen, we are all sinful people. We all struggle with sin, but that does not make God any less God. And it does not mean that he is no longer our God. It means in those moments that we are acting like, in those moments of sin in our life, that we're acting like he is not our God. And in those moments, we do crave our our sin more than we actually crave God, but that is not an indicator that he is not our God. Despite their blatant disloyalty of these adulterous people, God will rescue them. They embrace God as their God. They've prayed through the history of Israel, and they realize that, that the great mercy of God is there. And now they call on him as their God. Our relationship with God is a personal one. It's not enough for, just, for us to just acknowledge that God exists. Rather, we call upon him and we receive God personally. He is personal. Not only is God personal, but next notice that he is prominent. He is prominent. Not only do they say that God is our God, they say that he is the great God. This is to say that God is remarkable, that he is out of the ordinary in his magnitude or effect. He does not share in our narrowness of vision or being. God is the great God. There is no other like God and there is no other God. He alone is God, there, uh, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Psalm 86, 7 through 10. Over 160 times in the Bible, we find the phrase, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Micah asked the rhetorical question in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love who is a god like our god he asked this question is rhetorical and the answer is there is no god like our god there is no god like the god of the bible there may be many people there may be many things that people even set up as a god But there is only one true God. 
That's a God that we find in Scripture. Next, notice that not only is he prominent, but he is powerful. They say that he is the mighty God. This is the emphasis on his strength and capability. It's actually a, a military term, and it comes from a word that describes a great warrior. We live in a time when people go around crying uh, love and peace, but often we fail to realize that God is indeed a mighty warrior. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 24, 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. After God destroyed Pharaoh and his army, the children of Israel sang this song. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he casts into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It can Consumes them like stubble, and the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deep congealed in the heart of the sea. Exodus 15, 3 through 8. That's a powerful description of, of God as a mighty warrior who conquers his enemy. Those who only speak of God as peace and love do not have a complete understanding of who God is. God is referred to in scripture as a consuming fire. I am thankful for the grace of God that he is a God of love and mercy. However, let's be abundantly clear. He is also a God of wrath who will deal with his enemies. Next notice that he is petrifying. The ESV says the awesome God. Some translations say the terrifying God. The Hebrew word here means inspiring awe, reverence, or fear. The whole idea is that God is all inspiring and we are put in our place as he is in his place. The fear of God is not a doctrine that's really that popular today as many try to say it's just um, reverence for God. You just got to have reverence for God. And while it does carry that idea, there's so much more to it. Instead, it's a holy fear. We really need to rid ourselves of this shallow, sentimental, warm and fuzzy nonsense that views God as one of the good old boys. Uh, he's just my he's just my buddy. The God of heaven is not one of the good old boys. Nor is the God of heaven just your friend. Nor is he our, our homeboy or our buddy or anything like that. He is the almighty God of heaven who hates sin and wickedness. He is the sovereign Lord of all of creation. And he will not just wink at our sin. It's no wonder the Bible tells us that God is greatly to be feared. 
This is why the Apostle Paul said that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God doesn't just close his eyes to your sin and pretend like it does not happen. Yes, he is compassionate. Yes, God is forgiving to those who call upon him in repentance. However, he will most certainly judge those who continue in their sinful rebellion against God. That's why the scripture says, fear him who can cast your soul into hell. That's the God of the Bible. Not some God that's like some measly little weakling God that we make in our own imagination that's just like our grandfather or Santa Claus up in the sky. He is indeed petrifying. We don't fear God anymore because we've made him out to be our friend. Not only is he petrifying, he is perpetual. They say that God keeps the covenant. The covenant relationship between God and his people is central throughout the scripture. The people knew that God was faithful and he was merciful because of his actions in the past. Have you ever met someone who you would say was uh, wishy-washy? You know what I mean? They're just kind of me. You can't really tell what they're going to do or uh, if they really make up their mind and that sort of thing. That's not a description of God. He's not wishy-washy. He doesn't, he doesn't waver back and forth. He's faithful. He can be trusted. When it says he keeps the covenant, that word keeps is to protect, to attend to, persevere, watch over. He protects the covenant. He watches over the covenant. It describes a watchman who diligently watches over and protects his post. That's what it means that he keeps the covenant. This is a description of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Lastly, let's notice that he is pitying. He is pitying. They say, let not all these hardships seem little. They're pleading with God for mercy. They are saying, God, we're, we're making this request. We're we're saying that you not look on our trouble as some sort of small matter, God. But be merciful to us. Deliver us in the same way that you delivered our fathers. Now notice how they look to the character of God in his past promise. And then confess that promise in prayer. That's a good practice for us. To confess God's promises in prayer. The Bible tells us that God is rich in mercy in Ephesians 2.4. That God has abundant mercy in 1 Peter 1.3. And he has tender mercies in Psalm 103 verse 4. God is a God of abundant mercy. He's not sitting up in heaven just waiting to stamp someone out. He's not up there like, oh boy, I can't wait till, till Josh Monda makes a mistake, so I'm just going to stamp him out. If that were the case, none of us would be breathing right now. But our God is merciful, and he would rather show mercy than judgment. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious. 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high, for as, high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Can you imagine if God did not delight in mercy? What if God actually dealt with us according to our sin? Where would any of us be without the mercy of God? Praise God for his mercy. This whole plea for mercy is because they want it. They want God's mercy. They don't want more justice from God. They know that God is just. What they want is God's great mercy. That's what they're asking God to show them. They do not make it explicit, but it's all through this passage of Scripture. They've expressed how the Lord has always shown His people mercy. And they're asking Him, God, do it again in our day. You had mercy on our fathers. God, show us mercy. Their whole argument has been, uh, even up until this point, God is, is good to Israel. Israel sins. God shows mercy. This is the case that they're making. And they, wanted, they want God to do it again. God, God, you've been good to Israel. And we've sinned. And you've shown mercy. And we're just asking you. We've sinned again. And we're asking for your mercy to come anew to us. Now what I want to do as a pastor is encourage you to make the same argument. You make the same plea to God that they're making. When you want to bless God, when you want to praise him, this is what you do. You take into account all of the goodness that God has shown you. You stop and you take that into account. God, you have shown me such goodness and all that you've done and, and, and every, all the blessing that you've poured out on me. And then you make confession of your sin. God, you've been so good to me. And I have been so terrible in response. Confess all your sin. Own up to your sin. Make a full accounting of your iniquity to God. And then as you're doing that, rehearse the repetitions of his mercy to you as you're making a full accounting for your sin rehearse the repetition that God has not utterly consumed and destroyed you for your sin right because isn't that what we deserve remember when I gossiped about that person God remember when I lied about this situation God remember when I turned my back and I ran away from you over here God remember when I didn't share the gospel with that person that you told me to share to God I should be consumed thank you for your mercy and then you know what you do you pray for more you pray for more mercy you say God thank you for your mercy and I'm going to sin probably before this day is over. Oh, Lord, would you pour out your mercy on me 
anew. So we've seen this recognition of God's providence. They know that God is in control at all times. A providence of God that has led them, that has kept them, that has watched over them in all respects. It's revealed in his character. Now let's notice God's righteous punishment. God's righteous punishment. As we look at verses 33 through 35, we notice that they're speaking of God's punishment, but not just God's punishment, but the fact that God's punishment is righteous. So they're not, they're not accusing God of being unfair, but instead they acknowledge that their situation is a result of their own sin. And so what we have is this judicial term being used here, um, righteous, describing the punishment that meets the crime. So we must understand that God's righteousness and justice are inseparable. They work together. Therefore, what God does is always right. And he is always just in everything that he does. The people acknowledge the justice of God. If they are to be forgiven of their sins, then, then their sins can't be overlooked. There's a difference between self-pity and self-knowledge. Because self-knowledge opens the door for mercy. The people could clearly see the chastising hand of God because of their sin. They didn't have just self-pity. Oh, woe is me. I'm just such in a terrible spot and I'm this and that. Instead, they have self-knowledge. Their problems were a consequence of their own wickedness. This is why they acknowledge that God is just and how he deals with them. The Bible asks a question in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's again a rhetorical question that demands an answer. Yes, yes, indeed, the judge of all the earth will do what is right because he can't do otherwise. Verse 33 of this passage says, and we have done wickedly. Notice the use of the pronoun we and not they. They confess that they were a part of the problem. In today's world and even in the church, people are looking to shift the blame rather than to acknowledge their own sin. Verses 34 and 35, they further confess the sins of their fathers and everything that God did for them. They still failed to obey and follow after God. Before moving on, I want to draw your attention to the fact that the people recognize the sovereignty of God. The Lord allowed them to go through all of those experiences of intense pain so that they would come back to him. These severe judgments were an expression of the universal sovereignty of God in the token of his persistent love for his people. Now hear me out. I'm not saying that every time something bad happens in your life, that every time you go through suffering in your life, that God is punishing you for some sort of sin. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is in their case, he is showing his persistent love 
through their suffering and to allow that is an act of God's sovereignty. That he is ruling over everything in this world to bring him glory and to bring, in this case, his people back to him because of his love for him. That's the only reason that the sovereignty of God makes sense. The armies of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Persians, like the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines before them, were only victorious in conquering the people of God because God willed it to happen. Otherwise, it couldn't have done it. There is nothing that happens on the face of this earth that's outside of the sovereignty of God. And to act like there is, is a denial of who God is. God is not partially sovereign. God is not half sovereign. God is not limited in his sovereignty. But he is completely sovereign over all things. In verse 27, we read that God handed them over. In verse 28, God abandoned them to their enemies. In verse 30, he handed them over to the neighboring peoples. Just as earlier in verse 24, he handed them over to the Canaanites. You see, their history is not some sort of disconnected political accidents or some sort of military failure. God was at work in every aspect of it. Those prophets whose ministry they had despised, proclaimed God's sovereign rule. Isaiah identified the ruthless Assyrians as the rod of God's anger. Later, Jeremiah urged his contemporaries to accept that Babylonian's threatening king was none other than God's servant, fulfilling the divine purpose for Judah's chastisement. It was the Lord who handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians were later defeated because the same sovereign God raised up a Persian prince to deliver his people. If God is not sovereign over all, then there is nothing, absolutely nothing in this world that makes a lick of sense. Nothing. They recognized God's sovereignty in every aspect and so should we even when god is bringing righteous punishment it's an act of the sovereignty of god for his, of his love for his people next we notice the reality of their predicament the reality of their predicament as we look at verses 36 and 37 the reality of their situation sets in. It's a sad state of affairs. They find themselves slaves in a land that they were to be victorious in. The land yielded increase, but the increase was not to them. Yes, they had been delivered from Babylonian captivity, but they're under Persian rule. They're slaves to the rulers of Persia. They're facing the consequences of their own sin. Now, what we must understand is that many Christians live the same way today. They've been delivered from bondage by being saved, and yet they still remain slaves to sin. 
The Israelites remember God's word. Their greatest sin had been their disobedience to what God had said to them. They had abandoned the law. They failed to heed the commandments and the warnings were ignored. Because of their refusal to serve God, they're slaves to others. And now the Persians were not cruel overlords of them. But God's people were not entirely free. And heavy taxation frequently brought them to dire poverty. Their hard work on the land was mainly for the benefit of others. And only a great God who does great things could relieve such great distress in their life. Which leads us to the last thing. The renewal of a covenant by the people. The renewal of a covenant by the people. Verse 38 is a renewal of a covenant. The Levites are kind of like good preachers, right? They, they have some actionable points of application. They've spoken of God's goodness, their sin, God's mercy, and now they're prepared to take some action and make a covenant. We'll see this, um, the details of this in chapter 10. So I'm not going to get into all the details of the covenant because that's a whole nother sermon. In fact, we'll have two sermons over chapter 10. One dealing with what it means to keep a covenant and another dealing with some of the others. Where, where we will talk about making a covenant and being specific with the covenant. But what I want us to understand, and I'll give detail to this next week and next week's sermon in the closing of my message, is that this, a personal commitment this covenant is a personal commitment a public commitment and a practical commitment what is essential is that they covenant with God it's personal it's public in front of everybody and it's practical in closing I know some of you guys are freaking out. It's, I've been speaking 33 minutes and 30 seconds. Anyway, in closing, notice that Israel's, I'll make up for it next week, uh, that Israel's history testified to the Lord's goodness and to their wickedness. Though they were weighed down by guilt and tormented by their sinful record across centuries, they can still rejoice in the goodness of God. This prayer is an exaltation of who God is. That's what it is. Across all these centuries, God has done so much for them. In fact, if we were to count, we would see that there are 20 blessings mentioned in this prayer. God is a God who creates in verse 6, who chooses in verse 7, who encourages in verse 8, who hears in verse 9, who delivers in verses 10 and 11, who guides in verse 12, who meets in verse 13, who teaches in verse 13, who protects in verse 14, who feeds in verse 15, who forgives in verse 17, who loves in verse 17, who accompanies in verse 19, who clothes them in verse 21, who empowers them in verse 22, who sustains them again in verse 21, who multiplies in verse 23, who prospers them verse 25 who corrects them in verses 26 and 27 and who rescues them in verse 27 and they look back and they can they can see not only their dreadful unworthiness but the abundant faithfulness of God what matters most in all of this was that their vision of God is enlarged and what I'm saying to you this morning is that as a people and a church 
We need to enlarge our vision of God. As we consider all that the Lord has spoken to us and all that God has done for us, we are too often content with putting God in a box and having this narrow, restricted view of who God is and a bigger vision of the greatness and the sufficiency of God can have an impact on us, and I believe it's in three ways. See, I have to have three points to my closing. In three ways. First, it's going to challenge our irreverence of God. When they were prosperous, Israel took God for granted. They adopted morally selfish and spiritually careless lifestyles. They casually dismissed their covenant obligations to God. I believe that we too tend to become spiritually flippant and indifferent or apathetic about the things that matter most. This is because we become content with a severely limited doctrine and experience of who God is. And as the Israelites prayed, they become increasingly convinced of the holiness and righteousness of God. The gods of their neighbors could be bought off or placated, but not their God. If God is holy, then they too must be holy. They can never return to the idea that they can sin as much as they wanted to without it affecting their relationship with God. And the same is true of us. Enlarge your vision of God. If God is holy then we too must be holy. Secondly, a greater vision of God banishes our despair. The Israelite worshipers became increasingly aware of their sin and the sins of their forefathers. They had a crippling sense of failure and it was absolutely demoralizing. They had endless opportunities to demonstrate their love, holiness and commitment for God, but they failed to do so. Could they ever be trusted with a new beginning? And the picture of God that emerges from this chapter is one of a merciful and forgiving God. God will accept them if they come in genuine repentance and cast themselves on him for strength to conquer their sin. In the same way, God will accept us if we come to him with genuine repentance. Lastly, a greater vision of God overcomes our inadequacy. What will the Israelites do if temptation rises again? Because it certainly will. How can they be sure that they will be given the moral strength to conquer the allurement of sin in their life and rise to new heights of love and loyalty to God? The vision of God in this prayer is a reminder to them that God can change and transform the most impossible situations imaginable. God delights in taking the weak and the vulnerable, the people, and providing them with everything necessary. Abraham and Moses are mentioned in this chapter as witnesses to a God of invincible power and unlimited resources. Who can take unlikely people and transform them into strong and effective instruments for his sovereign purposes. What God will do for them, he will do for all belong to Christ don't you see that a greater vision of God overcomes our inadequacy
Every Christian is a seed of Abraham, an inheritor of the unfailing promises of God who is totally sufficient to overcome every problem that we face and is unlimited in his grace. If we will do what the Levites have done in Nehemiah 9, if we'll come to the place that the Levites do in verse 38, where, where you are ready to enter into a covenant with God through Christ by the power of the Spirit, then God will save you. God will show you his great mercy and his abundant compassion. And if you're not a Christian this morning, when you feel the weight of justice hanging over you, you then look to Christ. You seek the Lord who acts according to his great mercy and he forgives his people and you trust that he will do that for you if you're here this morning and you're a christian and you struggle with guilt and you keep thinking of that sin then you look to christ and you celebrate the mercy of god and the fact that god has not destroyed you and you live in that mercy because there is no wrath for those who remain in christ jesus we have a hope in Christ, if you are a Christian and you think, I'm too weak, God. I, I can't be used by, by you. God, our church is too small. There's no way that you're going to be able to do anything great in and through us. Then we are right where God wants us. Because his power is invincible. His grace is immeasurable. And we can be used by Him to accomplish only what God can accomplish. Oh, that we would sit back and say, God, oh, that you would do a great work through us. Lord, we are sinners. You've been so good to us, but we are sinners. You've poured out your mercy in the past. We should be destroyed for the sin that we've committed. Not just by individual sin, but our corporate sin as a church. God, we should be utterly destroyed. Oh, that you would pour out your mercy on us again and again and again and again. And again, that you would do what we could never do and we will give you the praise and glory. Oh, that that would be our prayer, church. That that would be our prayer. And we would sit back and watch God work. Let's close the prayer.